Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and today we're going to be talking about breach and attack simulations. And I'm going to bring on board a special guest, Dave Klein, to get into a little bit more detail. As always, please make sure you follow us on LinkedIn. And if you don't subscribe, please do so. You don't want to miss any of these episodes of CISO Tradecraft. Now, if you're connected to the internet, let's face it, you're at risk. But it's a requirement of being able to function that we have to communicate with others. And we recognize that bad actors can cause a lot of problems and come in through our connections that we have made to the outside world. Therefore, we use tools like vulnerability assessment to say, hey, where could they get us? And pen testing tools, which allows a red team to go ahead and try to simulate a breach. However, in trying to identify and address this risk with these sets of tools, they tend to be manually intensive. Vulnerability assessment tools can give you a huge printout with a lot of false positives. And let's face it, pen testing teams are important, but they're expensive. And usually the right time to bring them in is not at the beginning, but at the end. It's, there's a reason why it's the last control in the CIS control set. You do everything else first. So how do we prepare if what we have as a tool set are designed to operate at the end? The answer is breach and attack simulation software. These types of tools allow you to pose as a bad actor on your own network, and you can perform red team exercises and automate those. Think about it like you're trying to check whether or not a new bouncer is going to do a good job at the bar. So you have a couple of your employees pretend to start a fight in the bar room to see what the bartender does, steps back, looks at the bouncer. What are you going to do? Does the bouncer go in and intervene? Does he show some restraint? Does he run away? The idea is it's not a real fight, but it's designed to test your responses. And that's what you get from these tools. Essentially, you learn how bad actors can bypass your cyber tools and safeguards. And now you go from just having a vulnerability knowledge to an ability to see how well your incident response activities actually perform. And this is important because according to the 2022 Microsoft Digital Defense Report, the median time it takes from an attacker to access your private data, if you fall victim to a phishing email, is about one hour and 12 minutes. And if they're going to begin moving laterally within your corporate network, once a compromise occurs, about an hour and 42 minutes. Now, can you respond within that period of time, every time to make sure you can detect and prevent any further activities? If not, the advantage of these tool sets allow us to go ahead and exercise our teams to see how well they can do. Essentially, think of them as attack tools without a payload. They may try an exploit. They'll be doing something, try to read memory, try to do lateral movement, open up a PowerShell script, do things like a net use command, but it doesn't break anything. And so as a result, it's kind of like training with blanks. Now, they come in both agent-based or agent-less. Now, an agent-based type of a tool will run attacks from an endpoint to simulate the bad actor. But how do you feel about adding another agent to your enterprise? It's going to take up some resources, needs to be installed, and then eventually deinstalled, and it doesn't always do what a bad guy would do. Hence, one of the new solutions that are out there are agentless. These fixes a lot of these problems, and they're available as a software as a service. An agentless breach and attack simulation tool can simulate an APT attack without having to spin up a test environment. It'll run in your production environment and won't break anything. But it'll sure let you know if 
there's a problem. This, to me, is a fascinating area of technology that I think all CISOs should know about. Well, today we've got a special guest who's going to talk more about breach and attack simulation software and some of the complexities that go along with it. Well, I'm privileged to have on our show today Dave Klein here from Simulate, and he is a well resident expert. I've been talking to him for a little while, and I've learned an awful lot about it, so I'm really happy to have him on the show. Dave, welcome. Mark, great to be here. Great to be here. Now, like most of our guests on our show, you have some pretty extensive backgrounds, and I think you could probably tell me a little bit more about yourself than I could, but you know, what, what have you been doing? I, I see, you know, we kind of, we joke about this, like, yeah, we got both got the gray hair uh, going. <laughs> so you've been around a while, but tell me a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah. You have, you have more hair on top of your head than I do, by the way. <laughs> for now. Great. Yeah, for now, for now. So, so uh, a 20 plus years cybersecurity veteran, uh, an expert, had a lot of experience throughout the years. Uh, after 9-11, I'm from Philadelphia and uh, I traveled daily to New York City on a high-speed train to help shore up security after 9-11. I then did 10 plus years of US federal work, uh, all sorts of things, a lot of incident response work in doing that, uh, really fascinating. And also worked with President Obama on his critical infrastructure presidential directive, which was really fun. There's a lot of us, there was 800 of us. It wasn't like just me and him together in a room, right? You know? <laughs> but it, it was really rewarding. So, so in, over the years, uh, you know, really have uh, focused on the idea of threats and how do we handle threats? And more importantly, how do we go ahead and really inoculate ourselves in, in, in this environment of, of ever-changing threats? Now, you, you mentioned specifically threats, and you had done that back in the Obama administration. Is that what got you interested in breach and attack simulation, or was there some other pathway that got you into this type of uh, expertise? So the first experience I had that hooked me actually goes way back to, to 2001. And at the time I was at McAfee and they had me show up at a pharma company. And you kind of know, you, you, you develop your gut to know that you're walking into an ambush. And, and, and in this situation, they, they let me look at some protocol decodes. And what I saw, this is back in you know, 2001, was, was someone using native Chinese text using an instant messaging app to share some of their secrets with someone in China. And I was like, wait a minute, where, where is this? Well, it's in our R&D lab. Well, does the R&D lab have internet access? Well, it's not supposed to. So what happened was there was a, a Chinese national working for this U.S. pharma. He went into the lab, took out a, a cable, a crossover cable, and, and ran it uh, outside into a, a regular jack, and so had basically breached the R&D center and was doing this. And to me, after that point, I was hooked. So for, for me, you know, my, my background in, in counter espionage goes way back. And then, you know, again, after 9-11 with the city of New York and then with this federal account, it really became a big thing for me. And it was very, very exciting. And I know that's, that sounds kind of funny. You know, breaches are exciting. Most people, it's the bane of their existence. But I've had situations where I've been in doing incident response work where I'm like, this is so cool. And people are like, this is not cool. <laughs> well, I mean, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle made investigations really cool. If you think True. about it, True. elementary, my dear Watson, it's True. another breach and, <laughs> and the like. But yeah, that's kind of fascinating because 
those types of issues aren't new. I mean, people sometimes no. hear in the news today about current administration, past administration taking action against some certain nation states. And we think, well, this is all parochial and political, but it's actually been part of a long-term pattern uh, for some threat actors uh, going back literally decades. Correct. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and so do the, the players may change, but the techniques don't, or the players are the same and the techniques are the same, or, or what have you seen as that evolution over all these years? There are really three things that are the bane of existence of enterprises. One is the acceleration of how threats evolve have truly become a daily occurrence where, where attackers are, are learning what security controls you have and how to get around them. And, and so we're literally fighting something on a day-to-day basis. Number two, the level of vulnerabilities today is 30 times what it was 10 years ago. So not only do we have all these existing vulnerabilities that have yet to be patched in a lot of situations, we have all these new ones, right? Then finally, in the, in the pursuit of digital innovation, the way that our enterprises work today with playbooks and DevOps, we see changes occur by the hour, right? You simply can use Chef, Puppet, Ansible, Terraform, and push out whole VPCs, whole environments, thousands of servers, which is a few mouse clicks. So there's all sorts of problems with security gaps and misconfigurations. So these three things are really the bane of existence. And the problem is, is, is it erodes at our confidence. And the way to handle this is to be able to take three things, breach attack simulation, vulnerability management, and the ability to do threat exposure management in a way that is continuous, that's automated and is accessible. And by accessible, what I mean is not just to cybersecurity professionals, but the IT staff, the SOC staff, and the business to be able to go ahead and baseline your level of risk, what's going on, and then reduce that risk over time. So we've got the breach of the attack simulation tools, the vulnerability management. And Correct. the third one is going to be, as you had said, for accessibility. And threat exposure management. The threat exposure management. Right. So let's let's take a look at the first one there on uh, the breach and attack simulation. Now, it, it sort of suggests that one could run any type of random scenario out of a book saying, well, these are all the bad things that have ever happened. And it reminds me of in the early days of antivirus, and we've all been, you know, we've been around a little while when... I think it was like McAfee. We stopped both viruses in their version <laughs> 1.01. And then, of course, it gets a, like Howard Johnson, one flavor back in, in uh, 1888 or something like that. But the idea is, is that if you're informed about who your threat is, the more you know about where your potential adversary may reside or what they're looking for, who they are, the more likely you are to be able to come up with a believable scenario that is exercising, if you will, the right muscles. What do you, how would you explain a little bit more in the details about the importance of matching your breach and attack simulation exercises to your threat intelligence? So I, I would start by backing up a second and say, you know, let, let's talk about breach attack simulation and how things used to be done in the past. So in the past, people would do periodical pen tests, maybe once a year, maybe by a third party, 
And the challenge here is when that occurred, it either was a third party audit or it happened once a year. It was very arduous, right? Very hard to do. And you only had certain certain number of hours to do it. And the challenge today is in this traditional manner, only the Fortune 500 who has a cast of thousands could do this. But today it's important for everyone from the smallest to the largest to be able to do this. So what you need is a way to automate the testing. So the idea is if you did it manually, maybe you have you know 80 hours of work you did, right? That's not enough anymore. You need to do thousands and thousands of hours. And the only way to do that is to automate it. And by automation, we also mean because things change all the time, it needs to be updated by your vendor, right? Your vendor needs to update it as new threats occur, new vulnerabilities occur, and then most importantly, prioritize the results, right? You and I remember back in the days when you get vulnerability assessments and they were as, as large as the Sears Robux catalog, right? Gigantic, right? And half the stuff was false positives. The ability also is in the automation is to be able to not only update when things change, but also be able to prioritize and say, hey, listen, looking at the environment, I see that you have some security controls or operating system or VPC things you could do that would stop this threat. And here's the prescriptive way of how to do that, right? And so the idea is, is that part of that automation is being able to prioritize and give you prescriptive results so you can go ahead and say, hey, here's what you do. And on top of that, back to the idea of accessibility, you're able to hand off to the blue team, the SOC team, the report that says, here's exactly what you need to do, right? And you don't have to write that yourself, it's done for you. And then on top of that, for the business side of the house, you're also giving business risk. So you're saying, hey, listen, I know you just saw an invoice for additional $50,000. The reason is business continuity is threatened, right? The idea is, is that in these new solutions, part of the automation is the prescriptive results for the, the responder and for the business. And so really what we're doing and what we've said all along through our show over the months and now years is that security is in the business of revenue protection for the enterprise. Yes. And a lot of times in the classic version, security and security tool sets and things such as that are viewed as a cost center. Oh, it's like buying more toilet paper right. or more paper towels. Let's get the cheapest, thinnest stuff we can get so we're compliant. And that's really what compliance tends to be, is that oh, it's the kind of stuff that you see through. Okay, so yeah, if you get to go to the executive washroom, you get the three-ply kind that the cartoon bears use on TV. But more to what we're talking about here is that making sure that it's realistic is huge. The automation, I think, is very, very important because in the early days, we would do exercises where we would say, how well does your team respond? And if you have exercises that are designed to simply engage your SOC, or if you don't have a SOC and MSSP, or if you don't have that, then the one person has to stay up late and solve all the problems. But the automation makes sense because now we have a number of tools. They're interleaved. We create layers of security. And to a certain extent, if they fire correctly, many of those potential emulated security attacks, or more precisely, the real ones would be mitigated before they ever materialized. And there's a confidence factor there to be able to go back to the executives to say, okay, I've been, you, I've asked you for all this money or we're gonna have to ask for more money next year, but I've got an answer to the question. Well, last year I gave you a million dollars, Dave, and nothing happened. So why should I give you more money this year? Well, cause nothing happened. 
But there's a difference between that, well, nothing happened and being able to say, well, we just threw a whole bunch of spaghetti and the kitchen sink and everything else at our system with all these attacks. And we scored out at 97, 98, 900, whatever the number is. And without this investment, we'd have been a whole lot lower. And as a result, that whole range of potential attacks from our threat actors, those that we know about and maybe some that are emerging that we haven't yet heard of, they're going to get caught up in the flypaper. They're not going to get through these layers of defenses. And the business will continue to operate and the revenue will continue to flow uninterrupted by something that is outside of what we have as a normal business delivery model. Agreed. Am I covering that about right? You really did. No, you really did. And and that's the key thing. And and, and again, coming from the vendor side of the house, there's many times I've showed up at a, a customer and are like, oh, this is the guy who cost us a million dollars, right? You know, and you're like, ha, ha, ha. But the, <laughs> the key thing is in, in real life, because you're able to continuously show a baseline and then over time, continual reduction of risk, you're able to prove the value of your cybersecurity spend. You prove that it's optimized. You prove that that you're doing the right things. And another thing also, which is important, especially here at, at Simulate, what we also do with our, our, our customer base is we also not only baseline the customer themselves, but versus their peers in the industry. And I'm shocked at how often when I call people, they're like, I love the fact I'm a banking financial and we had a problem with EDR configuration and we found out that most of our peers are doing much better than we are. And then Dave, looking at the results of what we saw is we saw that with ransomware, that attackers are getting really good at getting around EDR by taking advantage of least privilege, multi-factor authentication, First-party controls. First-party controls are your operating systems, your VPCs, and other types of, of, of controls that are not the security controls, but they are, they're building the operating system. And they're like, this saved our bacon. And so the beauty is, is that they're, they're learning not only how they do by themselves, but against their peers. And I've heard board members and other executives ask those questions. In a way, it's sort of keeping up with the Joneses. We think about that. Well, you know, they, they've got something fancy on their home. I want something fancy. But oftentimes organizations do that where they'll baseline off of the median in their industry segments. They'll be able to say, I don't want to ever face a situation where my investors, my shareholders, or heaven forbid, if you ever end up at a courtroom under, under oath and a testimony, explaining to a jury that you've got below average to your peer security, because that's not due diligence. That's not going to meet your requirements to get yourself out of hot water because they can point and say, all these other entities were able to do that. Now, if you're above average and it's like Lake Wobegon where all the kids are above average, you're at less risk. Now, it'd be great to be invulnerable, but that doesn't happen. And so therefore, not only do you want to look at what can we do in our enterprise to make sure that we're properly prepared, that we've exercised and tested our defenses against a reasonable threat, much like a football coach is going to go ahead and watch the tapes of the team you're coming up to play next week and then say, okay, this is the plays they like to run. We're going to practice defending against those because they sure might pull out a trick play at the back end and we may or may not be prepared for that. 
But statistically, this is what they're doing. They're a running offense. They're a passing offense. They do this, they do that, whatever. And so bringing that metaphor back into cybersecurity, what we're able to say then is that by being able to effectively exercise our defenses against most likely threats and then taking action to be able to enhance that, we find that we have a much better chance of A, resisting a real live attack, and then B, if you ever did get succumb to one, you've got sort of a plausible defense to say, well, look, we did really well, but the nature of this business, it's like basketball. It's not like soccer. You don't get shutouts. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you, no, you don't. You're going to have a few <clears throat> a few here and there, and they're going to get through, but you're, you're much better defense. I remember a few years back, I used a, uh, a tax simulation tool to test out my managed security service provider. And what we did is we set it up to run 20 different tests over a period. We, we even spaced about a half hour interval. And I called them up and I said, hey, this will be coming. And they said, OK, and let this thing run throughout the evening, came back in the morning. They had the simulations had all completed. So I'm checking my inbox to see how many alerts I got of these 20 different independent things. Guess how many I received? Three. Yes. Yeah. And, and I'm thinking, OK, either the attack scenarios were so ridiculous as to not even represent something to worry about, or somebody was a little bit asleep at the switch, or more precisely, what came out of that is we use that as a training scenario. We use that to say, hey, these are the things that the breach attack simulation vendor thought would be important, but those aren't the things that you thought were important. So let's get everybody together. This is no blame game here. Let's try to get on the same sheet of music. And as a result, we ended up with a lot of improvements so that when we came back the next time, we saw better results. So, so to that point, I think that you've hit on something that's also very important that occurs in, in what we at Simulate do and companies like us do. It is also important as part of the solution is to have all your security controls as part of the feedback mechanism, as well as your SIM and all your other types of things, your SOAR, right? All your SOAR playbooks and SIM. Why? Because you hit upon a very important thing. What we're finding is in a lot of situations, we'll run a bunch of attack scenarios and we find out that the SIM never sees it. There's no alert, right? Or your security controls don't alert. Or in certain situations, they do alert, but they don't block, right? So another part that's important about this, this solution and what people do is you need to include all the security controls, integration, and all the other ways of seeing what is seen and not seen, right? The idea is if the SIM never sees it, the SOC is not going to respond, right? If the security control doesn't even alert on the attack, that's an issue, right? So the key here is you're, you're totally correct. Part of the solution is being able to do just that. It's tying into the security controls, both first party and third party, tying into your SIM and your SOAR to see what occurs. I, I have a funny story about this one. So I did a webinar on SIM and SOAR integrations and how, you know, in the case of SIM, the SIM may not see something. In the case of a SOAR playbook, you may have a break in what you thought was the playbook. Like it's waiting for a manual response when you when it needs to be automated. 
or hey, notify the on-duty SOC person of a problem. And it only has, you know, Dave, right? Not everyone else. It doesn't call the right, you know. And so you, you're able to see in these solutions the ability to see where the break occurred, right? Where, where something was not alerted, where something was not blocked, then at the same time where your playbook failed, right? And so the beauty here is, is with these solutions is part of what they do is exactly that, is they, they see what are you missing, right? And there's been several studies about the fact that SIMs miss, you know, most of the MITRE attack framework, right? And miss all sorts of tactics and techniques and procedures. And so the beauty of this is on top of being able to optimize issue critical controls, you're also seeing what is not seen, right? And you're seeing if the SOC doesn't respond, if they don't see it and things like that. Yeah, and, and I, I think you mentioned the MITRE ATT&CK framework. And for those who are familiar, and everybody really should be familiar with it, and if not, well, go read up on it because it's going to be something that's going to figure significantly, I think, for several more years is it looks at the tactics and techniques of attackers across a whole range of things, and then some more details, and then there's been profiles that are put together. APT 99 does this, APT 200 does that, and so on, things like that. And I've always kind of wondered, where do you get your APT numbers? Is there like a little old lady in tennis shoes at the Pentagon who's got a little <laughs> paper notebook, and uh, she, she writes them in there in the order in which you apply for them? I, I don't know, like registering a domain back in the early 90s or something like that? Any case, but the nice thing is, is that using that as a way of documenting what you're doing, you could say, hey, I know that based on my threat intelligence, that the attackers out there tend to use this type of a technique uh, on a regular basis. Uh, so like the old Beatles song, came in through the bedroom window. Well, if you know that there's three burglars in your neighborhood and one uses a crowbar and the other one uses a screwdriver and some steal jewels and the other steals clothing or whatever it happens to be, just kind of on the fly, but they all come in through the bedroom window and that's a common element that you've learned from police reports. What do you do? You reinforce that and you guard that. And it's less likely that you're going to be breached if you focus that. doesn't mean you leave the front door unlocked and wide open. That would be kind of ridiculous. But the nominal level of security that we've probably achieved throughout our enterprise is going to probably be sufficient to, if not deter the other less capable actors, to at least alert us so that we could go ahead and do something. But one of the things that I always thought would be helpful was be able to say, as you had said, can I then take that knowledge of my threats and then go to like an attack and simulation type of an environment and say, hey, I really care about bedroom windows. Can you give me out of your whole list of things bedroom window scenarios? So using that sort of as an analogy, does that exist? Does that work? So in, 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 at Simulate and in solutions like ours, the MITRE attack framework, APTs, and one more, FIN, F-I-N, right? Financially motivated attackers are all things that you can do tests on, right? So, so number one is, Often what we hear is, hey, listen, this financially motivated attacker hit one of our competitors or an APT. This APT, I'm a utility. An APT, this one is, is out to get me. And I want to be able to go through and set up a series of attacks based on that. So absolutely part of what we do is you're able to search and say, hey, listen, I'm, I'm going to make this up. I am in the widget business. And in the widget business, there's a financially motivated attacker who, who wants to ransomware myself. Who hit one of my competitors called uh, Rans Ransomware X? Plus, there's a Russian state actor, APT5, that is that is taking advantage of uh, of the situation. 
how do I protect myself? So you can actually search, come up with all the attacks you see in the, these cases and say, let's run some drills. Let's take a look. You can absolutely do it that way, right? So the beauty is, is part of the solution is being able to sit there and say, my environment, this fin, this APT player are critical, are issues. Or even back to, we talked about MITRE ATT&CK framework. In my industry, this tactic, tactic and technique to evade is used all the time. I want to test all the things that have this tactic, technique, and procedure. Let's see. Let's go see what happens, right? And then on top of that, besides just by threat actor and by MITRE ATT&CK framework, you can also say, hey, listen, I have a new EDR solution, which you, know, you and I, Mark, were talking about like, hey, you just cost me a million dollars, right? You know? <laughs> but the key is you want to optimize it, right? And the key is with most security controls, they're made to not interfere or give false positives. So sometimes they're not tuned correctly for your environment. And the beauty is, I just came out with an article recently that talked about how EDR is not a silver bullet. It's essential, by the way. It's absolutely essential, but it's not a silver bullet. And I talked about the fact that, especially with ransomware actors, they learn to get take advantage of all the basic hygiene flaws that people don't do, right? Lack of multi-factor authentication, weak passwords, not using least privilege, all these various things, right? To, to get by EDRs, to evade EDRs. And so the beauty is also these solutions allow you to say, hey, listen, I want to look at my EDR rollout and what first party and third party controls I need to attune. I want to look at WAF, Web Application Firewall. I want to see with the reverse proxy beyond script uh, uh, cross-site uh, scripting or SQL injection. I want to know what's getting past me. And the key is there, you're able to also defy security control to lock things down. So as we look at these things, and, and these are some great ideas, we're seeing, we're seeing a convergence in a way. We're, we're starting to see threat intelligence the vulnerability management and attack simulation. And are, are we going to the point where I don't need one of each, but I could go ahead and kind of get a Neapolitan ice cream where I've got all three players <laughs> in there? And hey, uh, I like Neapolitan. That's good stuff. Yeah, That's it's good, good stuff. stuff. Yeah, uh, it's good. And, and as we look at our CISOs, or for those of us who are looking at their tooling for the upcoming year and beyond, I, I think we've established that it's a meaningful way to validate what we've already invested in. You could go back to your executive team and say, I know you've funded all these things. You're questioning their value by using a combination of threat intel, vulnerability management to say, we think we fixed everything that we can. And then using this breach and attack simulation approach, we say, well, look, the stuff that we invested in is doing a really great job, or it has the potential to do a really great job if we could either get our act together or get the additional tool sets that we need. Presumably, if the first is the case, well, you should have been doing already before you brief management, but the latter then really gives you potentially some metrics and some measurable results with which you can go to management. Because let's face it, it's always great if you can back things up with metrics in your reporting. And what would be the most valuable metrics or reporting data you can get from a breach and attack simulation type of tool, which you could take to executive leadership? So the key is, is that uh, in dealing with business risk, you're able to automate the creation of these reports that show a baseline and trending over time and showing that you have gotten to the point where the risk level is at acceptable levels, right? In, in cybersecurity, we say there's no such thing as a silver bullet and there's no such thing as 100%, right? There isn't. There's no such thing as 100%. But the key is 
there's an acceptable risk level. And the beauty here is that this allows you to get that acceptable risk level and keep it at that level, right? And if it's a situation where you can't because a new threat or vulnerability is in the way and there's no way to, to block it with security controls, then you're able to say, hey, listen, we need to, to double down on spend expenditures and you can prove the business risk and value, right? And so that, that's really kind of critical. But also what's important here is, is from a technical perspective, we talked a lot about business risk. From a technical perspective, what do, what do technical leadership tell me they love about these solutions, right? The biggest thing they tell me is if they're the elite who have red teams, who have enough players, which is, by the way, almost none of us, right? None of us. But those, you know, global financial, you know, Fortune 50, 500, right? They'll tell you, I love this solution because it's more comprehensive than what I can do in a manual way. So it's, it's, like, it's like the equivalent of having hundreds of thousands of hours spent, and yet I'm, I can do my day-to-day -day job, and this is in the background, right? Number two, I hate writing prescriptive results and prioritization for the blue team, the SOC, and the business. This generates these reports for you. So they're already there for you. The, the prescription stuff's already there. So you just have to hand them over. The third thing they say is, while I can sit there and as new tactics, techniques, and procedures and indicators of compromise come out, I can update my toolkit. But by the time I'm done QAing it, a week has passed. With your solution, it's just there. You know, I'll get a call that the board wants to know about this competitor who was hit by this attack. I'll see that we already ran it in an automated fashion, right? And that's really kind of important for the, the elite. What about everyone else, which is most of us are in that, that bucket, right? Who have, you know, in, in cybersecurity, as you know, there's been a dearth of, uh, of open positions without uh, personnel. The beauty for everyone else is you can also accept this and use it in an automated fashion and get great value out of it. And for the people who have less skills, Another thing about this, it's not only prescriptive for the, for the SOC, the, the, the IT staff and business, for the security control person and security person that says, hey, listen, this is what happened. This is what the threat looks like. This is what MITRE means by this. This is what we're doing. Here's how you prescriptively make it better, right? And so the beauty is, is that for, for the rest of us, it makes it accessible for all of us. So I'm th it got me thinking here. So we, we look at the concept of managing vulnerabilities. And on, on Super Patch Tuesday, of course, Microsoft comes out with their scheduled update. And I was just looking at when you know, Microsoft Defender just told me that 100% of my devices are vulnerable to the CVSS 8.8 .8 right. thing. And I take a look at it like, okay, yeah, there's a general patch. We're going to push that thing out. But it's almost sort of like the anti-patch in the world of threat simulation, how long does it take between when one of these things hits the market? So it's no longer a zero day because there's a patch out there. We're not going to go into zero days because you really can't predict what you don't know. The Donald Rumsfeld's unknown unknowns. But something <laughs> comes out and they go, boom, here's an 8.8 or worse. It needs to be patched right now. And not every organization gets their patch. Now, sure, there's reports I could run as a CISO to tell me where I am in that but that's an administrative function, and I have a hard time getting people excited about the fact that it's taking a little while longer for people to update or reboot or whatever. But it seems to me that if I could run an attack and simulation tool and say, boom, I just popped 12 of our boxes, didn't, load a, didn't detonate a payload, but I was able to get through, that gets people excited. 
what's the development cycle typically of these breach and attack simulation vendors between when something goes wrong and when they can test that something goes wrong? So in a nutshell, the first things first is, is when you have new vulnerabilities that are announced, the first thing that occurs is you usually see proof of concept exploits. So you have in GitHub, you know, people, hey, listen, new CVSS score of, of nine plus, it's remote code executable, it's a Java, you know, JavaScript. You usually see um, in the environment, you find people do proof of concept exploits. So what usually the vendors do is update advanced attack tests to test those, the, 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 the tactics, techniques, and procedures. Then what happens as real threat actors start to take advantage of it, you update the indicators or compromises, which is a low hanging fruit, right? Is the URLs, the hash values, all the kind of things that you would see, toolkits, things that are, you know, you do that. And then on top of that, you test more techniques, tactics, and procedures. The output of this is the ability to see if in your environment, you have any first or third party controls. Remember third party controls are all the security controls. First party is the operating systems, the VPCs and other things like that. You're looking with attack-based vulnerability management, which is what we call this portion of the solution. It allows you to say, hey, listen, I see that you have these five vulnerabilities. These are the top five vulnerabilities found in your environment. We've discovered across the environment, here's where they're located, here's the, the assets. And by the way, change your EDR rules and you're good to go. Change least privilege and you're good to go. Uh, if you have multi-factor authentication enabled, you're good to go. And the challenge here is you and I, again, have been around block a long time. You and I used to go in and there's a new vulnerability announced, right? And you go into the, the director's office and they would take the, the conference room table, clean it off, have someone order pizzas. The dry erase board that was so meticulously done with a, the next 20 projects gets erased. And it goes, okay, Mark and Dave, you're going to find this. You know, Jim, you're going to look at this. And, and you can't do that anymore. You can't do that anymore. So the, the point is you need to find mitigating controls. And if you can't find mitigating controls, there's a reason you need to go to the business and say, listen, this is going to cost $100,000 and a delay. You got to do this because there's no mitigating controls. So the beauty here is that the difference from the past to now is we can prioritize the threat and the risk and therefore, if we can't find mitigating controls, say we have to do this, right? Yeah, and you either have come up with some compensating control in the meantime, yeah, which which says basically, okay, well, we're just we're going to turn that thing off because it could potentially go really bad if we left on, so we'll work our way around it. So as we look at then integrating these into our operations, is this essentially a red team tool or is it a blue team self-testing tool or is it a purple? I mean, where does it fit into the grand scheme? Where, where do we put this? this is beautiful. That's a beautiful question. So the key is, I, I'm going to tell an SNL sketch. It, it's it's a salad dressing. It's, it's I forgot what it was. It's a salad dressing. It's it's a, oh, a dessert topping. A salad dressing, dessert topping. In this situation, it's all the above. For red teamers, they can utilize it and incorporate it. But more importantly than that, the blue teamers can utilize it as well because it's very prescriptive for them. And then purple teaming, right? The idea of working together. And by the way, in my impression as an educator and a researcher, I think everything's going to purple team. The idea is you're trying to bring a whole group of people together. And by the way, it's not just blue team and red team, right? Blue and red equals purple. It's actually also the business. 
So really it's the blue team, the red team and the business and showing here's what we need to do to fix things. Here's the business risk and therefore justify it. And here is for the blue team, the prescriptive things you need to do. Red team, here's what, what, what the findings were, right? So it's all the above, right? It's all the above. And on top of that, and looking at our customer adoption, what's also neat about it is, it's not only people directly doing this, but also situations we have at least 40 MSSPs who utilize us. And they utilize us to prove their value to the customer that they have. So even in situations where the customer goes, hey, Dave, I know this is automated. I'm not sure we have the, 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 the bandwidth right now for it. I'm going to have my MSSP do it. And that's what's occurring is most people can do it themselves. But even in a, in a situation where like, I really can't do it myself, the MSSPs are doing it for them. And they're doing it for them not only for the customer value and for the customer benefit, but to prove their value on top. And that's really useful to prove your value. So in summary on that, the way I get it is that a red team can use this to focus their attacks on things that represent true threats. The blue team can use it as sort of a self-testing exercise to validate that they're doing their job effectively so that they can see are the defenses that they've set up and positioned really working against something that would be realistic. And at the business level, you really get validation. You get validation of the investment in the security tools. You get validation in the effectiveness of your security infrastructure, and you can build a little bit of confidence to say, yeah, I'm not too, too worried about it when somebody says, oh, there's a brand new attack or there's a brand new this, because in general, uh, you know, short of zero days, which of course are a whole different game, uh, you're more likely to be in a better position where doing this. So I guess kind of the last question is we're, we're getting close to our time here is, What's the, if you look at the little bottle here, how often are you supposed to take your dosage? Is this once a year? Is this twice a, twice a week? What's a, what's a reasonable dosage, if you will, for, for administering, if you will, self-administering, assuming you're not an MSP doing it for your customer, but you're doing it yourself? So the, the beauty of this is we have a lot of data. We, we have, you know, our customers run over a million tests a year. And every year we have a usage report that comes out. And the beauty of what we see is the average customer has 50% of what they do automated so that these tests occur daily and give them the, the change in threats up and down. Like, hey, listen, my risk score on EDR has gone up. Why? Ah, a new threat in ransomware. We need to make a change. Or, hey, the WAP is having some real problems. We've, we've degraded 20% in risk, right? Or increased, I'm sorry, increased 20% in risk. Why? Oh, a new, new cross-site scripting that, that takes advantage of obfuscation. Okay, we need to fix that, right? And so the key is, is that it runs on a, on a day-to-day basis and people look at it daily, but it's not demanding other time. So the beauty is, they're, 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 you know, it, since it's updated for them with the latest threats and vulnerabilities, they're, they're able to run it on a day-to-day basis, run it in the SOC as a dashboard and, and be able to use it in that fashion. On top of that, What's also important is it, it's low lift. So for example, uh, in my company, the average number of agents that run in an environment for an enterprise is 4.5. That's it, right? So it's in production, it's running because it, it really runs agentlessly and the agent just to make sure it gets the updates. But the beauty is it's a low lift and people run it on a day-to-day basis as part of their activities. And because it's automated, because it's run in the background, it's Wow. I mean, we could probably keep going for another hour or two, but I have to respect everybody's time because we got to get back to, to doing stuff. But this has been fascinating. I mean, it's always a pleasure to have you 
folks like you come on our show, talk about changes in the marketplace, cyber tools such as breach and attack simulation, and really how well it can fit into different elements of our organization and our cyber defense strategy. So, so thank you for your time. And to our audience, remember, if you enjoy our podcast, please uh, give us a five-star review if you concur that it's great because it helps us reach more people. It raises our profile and share other, other folks with what we're doing. Uh, tag us on a LinkedIn post and pass it along. It helps us reach more cyber professionals, and that's good for everybody. This is your host, G. Mark Hardy, and our guest, Dave Klein. Thank you again for listening in, and stay safe out there.